Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one by whom the earth was created. He is the one who upholds all things. He is the heir of all things. Jesus is God. Jesus is the final and lasting word of God because Jesus is God. Jesus is better than the angels because he is the son of God, not merely the messenger. Jesus is fully and completely God. And Jesus is God. It is a rich truth that we as God's people, we must spend much time thinking about and understanding the implications of Jesus is God. Yet if all we do is think about this time in the heavens and delighting seeing Jesus as God, we can quickly begin to feel separated from God. Almost as if he doesn't understand our sad states or our difficulties or the struggles we experience in this world, which is why I love what the author of Hebrews does. He builds this massive, beautiful crescendo of the Jesus is God in the flesh, but then he quickly reminds us he has experienced everything we have experienced. Because Jesus is not just God, he is also fully man. And this is where the author of Hebrews is is taking us in his flow and his argument of Jesus being better and that we can have great confidence in him. The author of Hebrews spent that first chapter shining the spotlight of revelation on the fact that Jesus is God. And now he's spending these last two sections of chapter 2 shining the spotlight on his humanness, his humanity, that he became flesh and lived among us. But what's interesting, and I want really quickly, everyone, if you will, flip back to the chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Because this is kind of the overarching thrust of chapter 2. The whole point of saying that Jesus is God and that we'll see that Jesus is fully man is just for one key truth, that our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. The reality is, is you and I, we will drift. We will drift away from these beautiful Life-changing truths. And the warning here is, do not drift. It says, therefore, we must pay close attention, lest we drift. But then look at verse 3. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now here's the fantastic truth about this author's line of reasoning. He's reminded us that Jesus is the reign and rule that Adam failed to be. That we failed to be. And now we do not experience that. We understand. But praise God, there is one who lowered himself from heaven and tasted death on our behalf. And what is this great salvation? What's interesting is he does it opposite than we think. Normally when someone talks about salvation, we talk about the forgiveness of sins, the sanctification, and the one come, one day coming glory, right, when we're made new. This author does it the opposite way. 
And I think so. I think he does so very intentionally. Look there with me and I'll show you it. And then we'll go back and dig into it. Verse 10, he says, for it is fitting that he, this is the father for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. This idea of glory. He starts with glory. He starts with the end result of what's been purchased for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 11, we see, for he who sanctifies and we who are being sanctified all have one source, namely our human condition, our nature, that we're human beings of the Father. But we are also being sanctified. And it's not until the very end of this section in verse 17 that it really highlights how all this happens, which is through the propitiation of a faithful and merciful high priest. And I find this very interesting that he does it this way. Because I think when we think about Jesus, we often just focus our eyes and our hearts on the cross. And we forget what he was purchasing in those moments. And we have to remember this was written to a group of people that were beginning to feel the the tensions of the world and and the tug of potential. Well, maybe I'll go back to the old covenant because I'm not quite seeing everything I thought the new covenant was going to plan out to be. And this author's like, no! Set your mind on the glory that is to come, the believer. Set your mind on these things. And we're going to see this unfold in two ways. Two reasons, two key reasons Jesus shares our humanity. We see this first in verses 10 through 13. That Jesus shares our humanity. It reveals that we can have confidence. He will bring us to glory as brothers and sisters. Look there again with me at verse 10 through 13 as we see this truth. For it was fitting... That he, the Father, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons where? To glory, should make the founder, Christ, of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting. It was suitable. It was even necessary that Jesus become perfect through suffering. Jesus must become like human beings at every level in order to bring us to glory, which is the culmination of our faith. And this perfection we see here, we have to, we have to do some thinking. Does this mean Jesus wasn't perfect? No, definitely not, right? Because we know Hebrews of any other book in the Bible, it constantly talks about his perfection. It talks about his sinlessness. It talks about the reality of who he was. Then what was it that had to be perfected? His humanity. He had to be tested in every way and never fail. And guess what? He did it. He wandered in the wilderness like Israel. But what did he not do? He didn't grumble and complain. He was the better Adam. He was the better king. He was the better sacrifice. He had to be tempted in every way and yet not sin. This is what this perfection through suffering is referring to. That Christ actually had to suffer as you and I do. Jesus did not have to be perfected from sin, but perfected in order to be our sin atonement. Jesus was not perfected from sin because he was perfectly obedient to the Father's will. Instead, look at this phrasing down here. The founder of their salvation. Maybe you have a different translation. That word could be founder or first one or leader or origin or beginning. See, Jesus is starting something new. 
in this humanity that he brings to the earth. He's starting a, a new type of people. He's starting a new type of obedience. This, this reign and rule that we read and learned about in Psalm 8, which is in the first section of chapter 2. And maybe you're here today, and maybe you're just one of those guys that you just feel like Jesus doesn't get your, what you're going through. The whole point of these two sections is he knows exactly what you're going through, and yet he didn't fail like we do. And this makes him the better substitute, the better faithful high priest. Jesus had an experiential life. He tasted things, some that were good and some that were not. He had moments of laughter, moments of sadness. He had to be tempted in every way by the world and the devil. Now his temptation was different in that his flesh was not corrupted like ours. But he was tempted in every way. He suffered persecution. He suffered hardship. Jesus was tempted. And yet he never sinned. This is the perfection through suffering mentioned in this section. And maybe you're new to following the Lord, or, or maybe you even say, oh, you know, I'm kind of a skeptic right now of this whole Christ guy. And the biggest reason you think he is because you just don't think Jesus gets what you're going through. And what the author of Hebrews is doing in this first section and this next section, and he does it multiple times throughout Hebrews, is he's saying Jesus understands exactly what you're going through. Better than that, Jesus understands what you ultimately need. And this is a perfect high priest. I mean, he doesn't really understand the battle, the struggle, the pain. Yes, he does. He understands it better than we can begin to even fathom or realize. And the author of Hebrews is kind of holding these two statements out for you. He speaks of his humanity in three different ways. He says, for it was fitting for him to become this way. Verse 12, it says, since therefore we share in the flesh and the flesh, he likewise partook of the same things, sharing in the flesh. And then verse 17, therefore he was made like his brothers in every respect. Three different times, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus was experientially human just like you and me. Yet he did not fail. Jesus gets what you're going through. Now we could say, well, he, he, uh, he didn't have the situation in my home where my, my parents are this or that, or he wasn't bullied in school like I am or these variety of things. But no, we know the scriptures tell us the temptation to resist God, to rebel against God, to follow the things of the flesh were there. Yet he did not sin. Not once. Instead, perfectly obedient to the Father. What I love about this is it almost pushes back on this reality of a world being human-focused. We live for what? What we think is ideal. We live for what we think is best. And Jesus is showing us actually humanity was created for one thing, to live for God. Jesus is reminding us that that all of these things are an aspect of the fall of human beings. But Jesus became the one who could redeem us so that we now can follow This better reality, one that is focused on God and his glory. The glory he desires is that he might bring us to this perfect peace that we saw back in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, where we speak of the reign and rule as co-laborers with the Lord. What I think is very interesting about this is sometimes if we're not careful as human beings, we we can misunderstand what's going on here. And I've been trying hard to think of a good analogy, and I'm going to try one, and you tell me if it works or not. 
Sometimes we think as a Christian, what, what happens in our lives is that when we're, we're like a horse and when we get saved, the Lord just gives us blinders. You know, those little things they put on their face to keep them going one direction. Those little, whatever those things are called. I think they're called blinders. I'm not sure. I didn't look it up. And we do like this and we've just got one focus on the world. This is us, right? This is what we think Christianity is. And we're just like this because all I can see is just this little aisle. I can't see any of you guys over there. I can only see a few of you. But if that's true, you've experienced the Christian life. Is that really what it's like? Do you get blinders? You don't get blinders. No, that's not what the Christian life is about. That's not what he's saying here. Instead, he's saying, guess what? One of the ways we battle sin and the things of this world, and he's going to build this out for the rest of Hebrews, is that there was a glory set before us that is so consuming that we want to go in the direction that it's calling us to go. The only thing I think of is like that old story, and I don't even know if they do this, you know, where you got the carrot in front of the donkey, keep him walking straight in the direction. Now, it breaks down like all analogies do, but, but what I don't want you to be deceived is that you think if you're going to start following Christ, you're just going to stop being tempted. No, that's not what happens, and this is what he's talking. He experienced every temptation. You will continue to experience temptation. But brother, sister, if you're in Christ, he says, I'm bringing you to glory. I'm bringing you to something even better than anything this world has to offer. And this is how we can be faithful to walk in obedience to him. is by clinging to this reality that he says, I'm calling you brother or sister. And maybe you're here today and you just constantly feel the pull of sin in your life. Or even feel the pleasure that it offers. And one of the things he helps us to understand is that if that's you today, if you're being tempted by the things of this world, one of the ways you battle that is by setting your mind on the fact that Jesus came to bring you where? Glory. You've been already promised a brand new physical body. So maybe you're struggling with a perpetual sickness or you're struggling with the grief of death of people in your life. One of the ways you you get out of despair and frustration is you say, Lord, you've already promised I have a new body. You've already promised there is a resurrection of the living and the dead. And so, Lord, I'm going to push through for this because there is glory because that's why you came. So that you might bring many sons to glory. Or maybe you're like me and you've experienced a curse in your work environment. And you long for that day when we're going to continue to work, but it's going to be in the perfect new heaven and new earth. This is what helps us to, to keep going on at work when everything around us is struggles and difficult. We, we remind ourselves and we remember Jesus experienced these things. And yet he says, I'm bringing you where? Not just to stick it out, but to glory. There's a promise. There's an inheritance that's ours in Christ. And as we'll see in chapter 4 and 5, when this is true, we can look straight at sin and look at it and say, you're lying. You will not deliver what you're promising to deliver. Instead, my God has already delivered everything I need. For the deceitfulness of sin We see just a little bit later in chapter 3. But instead we're commanded to encourage everyone as long as it is called today. To hold firm to the confidence we had in Christ. He wants to bring us to glory. This is his purpose in becoming human beings. In becoming a human being. Clothing himself in flesh while keeping all of his divine attributes. Think about it. Look how beautiful it is that he says, I'm not afraid. To call you mine, brother, 
sister. He says, he delights to call us. This is what he says there in verses 11 and 12 and following. Look there with me. It says, for he who sanctifies and the ones who are being sanctified have one source. Or we could say they're all one. And this, the source is that they, we start and begin in the Father. We, we have the same nature. Our humanity, this, this suffering, this brokenness. He says, but that's why I'm not ashamed. Because I've experienced what you've experienced. And yet I did not fail. And so I've purchased you. And now I call you brother. And he quotes from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. To kind of fill out this beautiful thing. Does anybody know what Psalm 22, what section that is? And when Jesus quotes it as if it's about him. On the cross. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he says, this is what I'm announcing, that I'm going to tell your name now to my brothers. And guess who are his brothers and sisters? We who in Christ are. We've got an older brother who didn't get it easier than we did. I know maybe you don't ever think this if you're the eldest sibling. You often think it's what the youngest sibling who gets it a little easier than you. But sometimes, right, we accuse the older brother of this. He doesn't get what I'm going through. Yes, he does. That's the whole point. He was made perfect through suffering, and he still calls us brothers, sisters. How wonderful it is it that we can know that Christ is our victor. And now he grants us this beautiful reality that for those who believe in him, he never once says, you're not one of my kin. Not once. He's not ashamed to call you by the family name. Because he's bringing you to glory. He's bringing you to this place where you have the strength to fight against the temptations of this world. Because you've set your mind. You're not neglecting this great salvation. You're not letting yourself drift by the glitz and glamour of the world. Because you've been already given something that's more glorious than anything this world has to offer. But maybe if you're like me... You remind yourself of this, but you still struggle to fight sin because it weighs heavy on you. And the devil loves to whisper in the quiet places of our heart, not good enough. Or worse yet, he likes to say, good enough. You see, both of those are just as deceptive. Right? That the reality is that none of us are worth being saved. But in his mercy, he comes and does this work. Look at verse 14 now with me. So first we see that Jesus shares our humanity and calls us brothers and brings us to glory. This is supposed to be a driving motivator for delight and trust in him, not neglecting this great salvation. We think about the glory that's been promised ours because of our big brother. In verse 14, we see that he also, we can have confidence that our death is gone and we have a faithful high priest. Our death is gone and we have a faithful high priest. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children, what children? The ones just referenced above. In Isaiah 18 that was quoted, the children of God. Share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong Slavery. What's so remarkable about this brother, Christ, who says, I genuinely know your struggle. I genuinely know what's going on in your life. He says, I partook of flesh and blood. This definitive word of God became flesh. 
Again, chapter 2 is emphasizing his humanity, but for what purpose? So that we understand he understands our struggle. You know what, and like we said, I used this illustration before, because we needed a substitute just like us in order to save us. He must have experienced, yet never failing. That's why he can save. Look there with me now at this section as we kind of dig into what he's speaking about here. What is the devil that he has a power of death? Look there again with me at verse 14. It says, he became this that he might, through death, destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. What is he talking about? The power of death that the devil holds over us. What is he referring to? Well, again, we need to do a little bit of work to think about this. We do know what the scriptures talk about, like in the Gospel of John. The devil's called the rule of this world, both in John 12, 31 and 14, 30. We know that Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2, that Satan's power of death is seen in the spirit of disobedience. But we also see this connection, and it's based on the way he works this out. So verse 14, if you were to lay it out, he, he kind of lays out this argument. Since we are flesh, he became flesh to save us from death. And we see it again in 17. He was made like us in every respect. He had to become human so that why he might be our high priest to do what? Make the propitiation for sins. We know if we're familiar with the scriptures, the power of sin is death. One of the biggest things I think that the author will see much later throughout the book of Hebrews, that the power of death that Satan holds over us is the power to call us sinners. He loves to whisper this in our ears. You've experienced it numerous times, as do I. You're not good enough to be saved. But Romans 8 tells us, what do I get to say? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So back up. Because guess what? My sin has been atoned for. How? Because a person, a human being, God in the flesh, took my place, perfectly sinless, took my sin. Not only that, but he propitiated my sin. We'll get to that in just a moment. But the devil's power of death is that he enslaves us in the fear of our sinfulness. We're so worried about whether we are going to be good enough. We're so worried about whether we measure up oftentimes. The power of sin, if death, is sin. John Owen says it this way. All of Satan's power over death was founded on sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. If this obligation is removed, then Satan's power is lost. He can extend in death. And Jesus' death, what did it take away? Our sin. So what can, what is the only thing Satan can hold against you? Your sin. But if that's removed in Christ, then no longer you are in fear to anything that Satan can say, can do, can whisper, can seek to make you feel, but instead we've been freed. The penalty of sin is death, and Jesus, our victor, paid that price through his physical death. Think of it this way. I'm going to have Psalm 23 up on the screen. I want you to think of it this way. Psalm 23 in verse 4, a familiar psalm that many of us know. Here's what it reads. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Sometimes it's interesting to do this, and, and, and you want to be careful and do this, but what if we flipped it? What if we made it an anti-shepherd psalm? Well, how might it read? How might it read how the devil wants you to actually believe? How he's trying to keep you in captivity to, to walking in boldness, and he would say something like this, even though you walk, and you will walk, 
through the valley of shadow of death, you have everything to fear. Every step you need to walk carefully. Every moment of your day you need to tread lightly. Because you know what? Every moment you could die. And sin could be still held over your head. There's no one who cares for you. There's no one who loves you. There's no one who can do these things. But we know according to Hebrews chapter 2, what do we no longer have to believe? An anti-Psalm 23. Instead, this is our shepherd. He walks with us through the shallow of death because he took our death. Brothers and sisters, this should give us such confidence to walk boldly every day. To say no to sin. To say yes to declarations of Christ. Because our Savior, Christ himself, took on every aspect of our flesh. It says in verse 14 and verse 17. So that he might become the propitiation for our sin. What great news. That the power of death is sin and Jesus has taken our sin. Now you're freed. What's so hard about this is many of us just deny that we're actually afraid of death and its consequences. That's the greatest reality of thing. Is no one talks about the big elephant in the room, which is death. But it's the very thing that, guess what, now we as Christians, we're no longer afraid to talk about. We're no longer afraid to walk beside people in these things because we know King Jesus came. He lived a life we could not in the flesh. Suffering, being tempted, yet was without sin, so that he might free us now to walk boldly for him. Jesus must not just be merely fully human, but he also must take our sin. Look there with me at verse 17. Therefore he made him to be like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Pastor David mentioned just a moment ago. First section, he says, I'm not afraid to call you. I'm not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. And he's here, he's not saying, he's like, I'm not ashamed to be your priest. I'm not ashamed to be one who says, I've already atoned for that sin. I've already taken care of these things. And how has he done so? What well, says that he made propitiation for sins of the people. Propitiation is this reality that sin deserves death, not just wrath, death, but the wrath of God, which Shane Spoke about four or five weeks ago. I can't remember exactly when it was that he preached from Romans in chapter 3. That the wrath of God is due sin. But that he, by his physical, literal sacrifice of his very blood, he propitiated. He appeases the wrath of God. He satisfies the wrath of God. How? By taking it on himself. By taking it on himself. He is, in a sense, our wrath absorber. For the sins that we've committed. What's so beautiful about this is this is something he is going to park on for the rest of Hebrews. He's going to spend sections talking about he's the better sacrifice. He's the better priest. He's the better covenant maker. He's all these things. Why? Because he is the one who propitiated our sins. He took our wrath. And this frees me now to look at Satan when he tries to whisper. When he tries to convince me of these things. I'm like, no, I walk boldly. Because I've got glory in front of me, and I've got one who's a faithful high priest, even when I mess up. Even when I struggle, he will be beside me through this all. An essential part of who he is is that he is not like the line of Levi, as we'll see later on. He is of Melchizedek. But here's what's interesting about it. What kind of sacrifice did Levi offer every time they went to the temple? The blood of what? 
animals. It's a huge theme we see in the Old Testament, animals constantly. And he's going to build this out later. Here's the amazing thing about this faithful and merciful high priest. He came to purchase us that he was willing to shed what? His own blood. It was the priest himself whose blood was shed. Why? So that we might have our wrath removed. The idea of this merciful and faithful high priest is right here. He says, you don't have to walk around letting the weight of your sin hold you back from being faithful to me. But instead, know that I want you to come to me. I'm not ashamed to still call you mine. Come to me. Confess your sins. Admit your wrongs. And I will make you clean. And and we'll see throughout this book, I'll give you a conscience that's clean. And I'll give you a desire for holiness. I'm going to do all these things. This is our faithful high priest. He became flesh to be all of this for us. And yet, this is the whole thing. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't neglect thinking about it all the time. If you stop thinking about it, you will drift. And he wants us to know that we have one who has given us glory. He's making us into this glorious reality. He is also faithful in these moments as our faithful high priest. Because he took our sin, our glorification, our sanctification, and salvation's beginning, our justification, all happened at one moment, one beginning, Jesus' death. Do we think about it enough? Are we scared to think about the wonder of the reality of something even we call blood, which must be shed for the forgiveness of sins? May we not shy away from thinking on these beautiful truths because it is where we find our salvation. And how amazing is it that how it ends in verse 18? So we see that he took our sin by becoming our wrath absorber. He took our wrath Because he was our sin in those moments on the cross. Verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, oh, this faithful and merciful high priest, he is able to what? Help those who are also being tempted. And this is what's being held out to us today by God's word. Do you understand the humanity of your Savior? Do you understand it enough that you understand your struggle you are never alone in? You are never alone in the struggles. You are not walking through this valley of life and death apart from the one who has already sealed you in his death. The call to no longer neglect this great salvation means you and I, we must pay careful attention to what we think on. We must not simply think Jesus mailed in his redemption from eternity. Think about it. Like, what if you just got a letter in the mail just saying, hey, guess what? Your eternity secure. It's not very personal, right? This is why we, but we know Jesus didn't just mail in his, his salvation from eternity, but he became flesh. He clothed himself, calling us brothers and sisters, redeeming us, giving us the promise of glory to come that we might no longer fear death because he conquered death in his death. This fear is sin and it's condemnation. Yet Jesus provided salvation as our wrath appeaser. We are no longer condemned, but now we're free to walk in confidence into any and every situation. You know what? I think this is the greatest reality for us in these moments. Because he's going to build it out in chapter 3 even more about this rest we get to enter into. I can't wait for that section. But for today, let's think of this. How often do you think about the humanity of Jesus? So much so that it gives you the confidence 
To keep on holding fast, to cling to the truth, to never let go and not look at the sin and temptations of the world. Because remember, salvation isn't this. Salvation, we don't get blinders by the spirits. But instead, we've been given a taste of something more glorious that makes us say, ha, I know what you're offering is not real, but I've got the real thing. And that comes as we meditate and we think on the reality of Jesus becoming man. Every aspect, every way. He promises his glory. He purchased us through the blood and appeasing our wrath. And now you can trust in this high priest. Every day. Spend some time talking about the humanity of Jesus today at your table. Not separating it from his divinity. We can't do that. But intentionally focusing on that so that it gives us strength to keep on keeping on. Really quickly, look at 3.12, and I'll finish it with this. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is it that you are to exhort? Jesus was made like you in every respect, and he took your sin. This is what we exhort each other with. Do not neglect the salvation Do not think you can just apathetically pass through this world. But instead, may we run constantly in our hearts and minds to our Savior. And especially here, thinking about his humanity, his suffering. That he was made in every respect so that he might free us to walk with him in this life. May we... Be those who think about him and praise him for who he is. Jesus is better because he became like us so that he might free us from these things. Oh, what an amazing Savior we have. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.